Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Here it is, RFM, another episode of Mormonism Live. How are you? I am great. How are you doing tonight, Mr. Real? Excellent. You're rocking the uh, Olympic shirt tonight, Team USA, USA. It USA. seems timely. It's just more tribalism, isn't it? Well, absolutely. That's what the human race is founded on. It's time to embrace the madness. Yeah, yeah. It's time to embrace the madness. There's been chaos already. We've had gymnasts stepping down and stepping away for their own self-care and Lots of other stuff happening. So Yeah. Without tribalism, we'd be a planet of billions of hermits. <laughs> Which we don't want. We're social creatures. Of course, if we were all hermits, we'd want that because we were obviously enjoying it. Um, another episode of Mormonism Live. I think, what is this? Number 34? Number 35? I think it's 34. 34. And uh, tonight we're going to do an Ask Me Anything. So if you will, wherever you're watching this, if you will put your questions in the comment thread. Um, I'm already seeing a bunch of those from Facebook and from YouTube. Also, just a note, last week uh, I made a mention of Thomas Monson's son, Thomas Monson, and um, somebody said I forgot to say alleged uh, in terms of what he was doing, and I just want to note alleged, although there's plenty of uh, material out there if you want to Google search it. Um, and so you can make your own guess at what Thomas Monson, uh, I say junior, but he has a different middle initial, what he was doing, but he got fired from uh, one place, let go from one place, and very quickly turned around and started working for Curtin and McConkie. That much I know is sure, yes. and there's tons of information on what happened. Um, lots of other things are going on, too, and we'll get into those in a moment, but we wanted to start off with our first segment and uh, wanted to make mention that you had done an interview with uh, Carrie Schertz. Yes, the backyard professor. Um, about a month ago. And I remember back in the 90s, uh, knowing uh, of the backyard professor and seeing some of his material. And somehow he had kind of vanished for years. And then suddenly, suddenly, he reappeared. Look at that. <laughs> How's it going, backyard professor? Where am I? Where am I? You're on, am I in you're on Mormonism Live. Am I in my seer stone? Yeah, something like that. We we rolled the magic eight ball, and you have magically showed up. My spaceship. Whoa! <laughs> so how are you? Doing really good. And uh, I, I I haven't had a chance to listen to the whole thing, but I thoroughly enjoyed you and RFM's conversation. Um, I'm probably about halfway through at this point. I was about a third of the way through, and I talked to RFM a couple of days ago, and I listened to a little bit more of it. And um, I've always been interested because I, I was with Fair Mormon as well for a while. And you were with them, and, and you were, just as the two of us were, apologists, not for the church, but defending the church. And um, after RFM's interview, uh, Radio Free Mormon reaches out to me and says, Carrie might, might be interested in podcasting again. So I reached out to you. And uh, RFM and I would like to welcome you to the Mormon Discussion Incorporated umbrella. You are now have your own podcast, The Backyard Professor at backyardprofessor.org. And there's already, I think, three episodes that are out. And I'm sure you've got more on the way. Uh, Carrie, tell us about uh, your podcast. 
Uh, they're boring as usual, just like my interview. I don't feel bad about it. I'm only halfway through that interview too. <laughs> <laughs> no, RFM was a blast to talk with, wasn't you? Yes, we had was. fun, didn't we? Yeah. Yes, we did. I can't yeah, believe what a slog it is. Bill Real isn't even halfway through yet. He said no, a couple. What is it? You're halfway through, and a few days ago you were like a third of the way through. The way this sounds painful. Halfway. I, I listen on the way to work, and so I try to catch 20 minutes here, 20 minutes there. Oh, here's a comment, by the way. I don't mean to take away from Brother's shirts, but but Bill Real has released the uh, audio, which um, some unspecified individual made of his excommunication proceedings. That happened on, on Free Mormon. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. That's right. I did release that, didn't I? They, that's right. You Take a bow. Take a bow. <laughs> <laughs> I was involved in that. I forgot. Thanks for bringing that to my recollection. You culprit, you. But, it, but Bill has released it, re-released it on YouTube, and it's going crazy. I think it's got about 2,600 downloads, and you released it a couple days ago. Is that right, Bill? Yeah, it is uh, 2,687 views so far. I released it, yeah, two days ago. And I say that because DJ Better, which you won't be able to see in the audio version of this podcast, just posted Bill Real's statement at his excommunication was amazing. Capitals exclamation points. Yeah, yeah. That was the comment somebody put up. And, it, it, you know, that audio, I think, is crucial. I think anybody that believes in the church and doesn't really understand the mess can get it in one hour. Uh, you can hear essentially every major problem in the church. Carrie, you... Uh, when you were an apologist for the church as the backyard professor, like RFM, like myself, you were defending it. And uh, and now here you are on the other side of things doing a podcast on this side of the church being uh, less than all believing. I'll leave it at that. I'll leave you to tell your story on your, on your show. But um, maybe tell us kind of some of the things that listeners can expect um, by tuning in and subscribing to your podcast. All right. First off, I do want to confess that you two are the only two I have ever wore a tux for. Mormonism live. Yeah. Better than your homecoming day, huh? You didn't wear one for me. Yeah. yeah. And then I've got my Einstein tie. E equals, e equals MC squared. Evidence equals Mormonism is kooky or crooked or something squared. Anyway, that's the new version. What I'm going to do with my podcast and so much for inviting me to join you two with this uh what what would we call this informative fun informal yet serious but not taking ourselves serious but we're going to be well you two aren't ever serious except at your excommunication bill i just my wife get this my wife listened to your podcast first during the day while I was at work. And when I got home, she said, you sit, listen. And she said, is this the guy that you're uh, joining with to do podcasts and videos? And I said, yeah, 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 that's Bill. And we listened to that. And I, I must say sincerely, that was spot on. It was honest. It was straightforward. It was actually just you talking to some fellow brothers in the church saying, look, here's some issues that I'm uncomfortable with. And I believe the way you presented that, you made them 
uncomfortable with some of that because it is personal. And so here I am. I'm on the other side of Mormonism. Well, I, all right, we could go with that because I mean, I'm obviously, I can't be an apologist anymore. There's just, it's not going to work for one thing. But in my podcast, I've had uh, quite a few people. I'm on a, uh, a message board uh, periodically. Um, we get together and, and talk on the message board, but uh, there I'm, I'm kind of discussing, they want me to uh, <laughs> refute my own apologetics, right? <laughs> and I'm going, oh, boy. I think yeah, you, here we go. Yeah, I think you diving into the book of Abraham and going right. into your old material and showing where you now disagree with your own point of view, I think would be incredible. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's in the... Uh, that's in the works. I was fortunate enough uh, for whatever reason. I don't know. I think my old website is defunct right now. It's gone somehow. I, I don't know. I was fortunate enough to print off the majority of it, right? But unfortunately, as you can see behind me, I have so much crap. Uh, I mean, uh, good books that I haven't got a clue where I put it all, but I'll find it eventually. <laughs> yeah. So... The idea that I want to do in my podcasts and in my videos is to present, and I know you, you're going to laugh, Mormon apologists are going to have a heyday with this because it's what I said as a Mormon apologist. So, so let it be said, so let it be written, so let it be podcasted. Mm -hmm. I want to see the fuller view. Yeah. Look, I've seen, this is so interesting how this works, and you guys know this, but there's a lot of people who don't. Maybe there are some Mormons out there who are truly nervous. I had an astonishing, astonishing, that's capital A on that phone call a week ago from a friend of mine whom is stake president material. And he said, hey, I saw your interview with RFM, Radio Free Mormon. Good job. And I go, you listen to Radio Free Mormon? I didn't know that. You know, wow, that's interesting. And he said, well, he said, I, I, I don't believe it anymore either. He said, you know, the church essays, uh, you know, aren't those almost our best friends, you guys? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, ta I'm talking to you, Bill and RFM. I mean, wow. It's it's like the gift that keeps on giving <laughs> doesn't stop. Because those essays, like it or not, those essays are the watershed moment for someone to make up their mind, uh, well, what now? Yeah. Here we've been trucking along with... Boyd K. Packer's Accurate History. And here we've been trucking along and boogieing with Neil A. Maxwell's Disciple Scholarship. Disciple Scholar. Have hey, don't, don't, don't forget Truman Madsen and his history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what, what is a Disciple Scholar? What, on, what incarnation does that 
Maine. You know, I've never heard anyone until Maxwell come along calling it disciple scholarship. Carrie, I still have your old chapter drafts I helped you with. You plan on finishing it? Oh, Troy Mantes, I've got to do a shout out to one of your audience. Troy, you rock, brother. I'm so glad we can get back together. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. So here's the gig. I see from a Mormon point of view, from the apologist point of view. Oh, yeah. Don't listen to shirts. Don't don't listen to the backyard professor. See, all he's doing now is he's just being an apologist for the anti-Mormons. He's just being an apologist for the critics. True, except with this difference. And it's really, really important. This difference is that. And, and I know I'm going to drive this in the ground in a way, but I promise I will not overdo it. I, I so promise. Because there's a lot of people who disagree with this, but I've discovered Bayes' theorem. And, and I explained that in my introduction. I'm not going to go through all that noise again. However, what I've discovered, now what really gets interesting is, is I'm applying this uh Bonk, bonk, bonk. Bayes' theorem idea of the fuller background material, and you bring in more evidence, both pro and con together. You're not allowed to leave, leave out any background. What have I discovered? The pattern, and you can't see this as an apologist. This is the dumbest thing I have ever experienced, and yet it is the most profound and shocking thing. As a Mormon apologist, you two will back me up on this, you can't see that you're not presenting the whole kip and caboodle, can you? You don't see that you're incomplete, that you're not giving the full background, or because... The thought, I'll take it back. You can see you're not given the full background. The thought is, well, I mean, come on, it's not necessary. It, it's really not that vital. Um, it's okay if I sort of, okay, that really doesn't fit. So just, it's, it's all right. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make up for it by 33 more footnotes with these studies who agree with me. And I'm going to leave out that little bit of a background because my conclusion won't be quite as strong. And I really want to convert somebody here. I mean, I really want to make this paper good. I want to make people think. I want to make people see that truth, testimony is a good yeah, there it is. Thank you. The Backyard Professor on Bayes' Theorem, Alma and I. That's a spinoff of uh, Daniel Peterson's article on his blog, Sick at Non, which I discussed, which you two did a masterful job in your Alma video that I recommended everyone in this one watch. So I'm not. it's not that I'm going to do Bayes' Theorem with absolutely everything. I just have a lot of wonderful stuff that I have been sitting on. I have been gelling over... How does one quit being an apologist after I gave my all for defending the book of Abraham? What was it that turned me against the book of Abraham? I guess you guys will just have to watch my podcasts and videos. <laughs> suspension, man, suspension. Come on. Don't yell at me too loud. No, so, I love it. I, I love it, Carrie. So I think this this is one of those moments where all of us – and I mean RFM and me and John DeLynn and 
you know, Jeremy Ronald, all these folks, um, little by little, we, we end up coming to a realization that the church isn't being honest and it's not what it claims to be. And now on the other side of things, we understand how the apologists work because we were one of them. And, and I love, by the way, as I've got your website there up on the screen, um, you're bringing in other things too. Um, other, other materials. You just talked about this Thomas Riskus article uh, on one of your episodes. You, you bring in this whole idea of base theorem. I'm excited to see and hear the, the other materials you bring in to, to help people kind of recognize these old arguments that no longer work and, uh, and to help people kind of figure out maybe that there are parts of Mormonism that don't add up and, and to help them kind of make that adjustment. Yeah, my next my next video slash podcast, I've got some breaking news, and I want you guys to pay attention very carefully. I know I, I have to act like a professor. I'm the backyard professor, right? Yeah. A non PhD wielding backyard professor. I mean, can it possibly get better than that? <laughs> we have discovered Lehi's DNA, and we have discovered the Lamanite's DNA. Mm. Now, that's going to be my next one. Uh, hopefully, I've got sunstone in the morning at ten o'clock. Yeah. I'm doing a sunstone session, and and I'm I'm looking forward to that. We're doing it on the Western esoteric tradition and Mormonism, and I'm going to do one on the Mother Goddess. So I'm really going to rock. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I mean, Mormonism is so cowardly about mom, and uh, I'm not the one when I get back there that's going to have my pants pulled down and my bare little butt spanked. I'm getting the chocolate ice cream cone on the hug from mom. That's how it's going to work. So oh, I love I'm, yeah, I'm, I've, I, I found some materials on the biblical concept of the mother goddess. So uh, the divine feminine, it's a beautiful concept. It, in fact, it, it's, it's such a beautiful concept. It's absolutely stupid that Mormonism is just being so stupid. I know, right? Like it, yeah, it's a beautiful yeah. thing that could be yeah. a positive difference maker and they don't really want to utilize it. Um, <laughs> For, for everybody who is uh, listening right now or watching, uh, check out uh, Carrie Shirts, The Backyard Professor, at backyardprofessor.org. Uh, um, I don't yeah. think you're quite up on iTunes yet, but uh, by tomorrow morning, I will have that done so folks can uh, get the podcast uh, on third-party apps. And you can go to backyardprofessor.org as well as our YouTube channel and listen to Carrie there. Uh, Carrie, I'm excited. This We're three episodes in. And uh, you've got an interview with RFM, and I hear there might be an interview coming up with another another uh, well-known Mormon podcast here soon. Um, folks can uh, tune in and subscribe and check out your material, and it'll be exciting to see what uh, what you put forward. Anything from you, RFM? No, just happy to have uh, the Backyard Professor on board. He is absolutely brilliant. Oh, Come on. People know better than that. I'm a smart aleck, but I mean, other than that, yeah, I can fake it. You know, Nibley did, so I can't. <laughs> no, no, Nibley was brilliant, but I will describe it in another podcast. Uh, I, I read everything the man wrote. How on earth can you refute Nibley? I have been asked that. Um, I do have a podcast video where I will show uh, my now view of Nibley, not disrespectful at all. No ad hominem, no attack on his personal character or his knowledge, but uh, there's problems. And Right. I think that Hugh Nibley's brilliant. It's just a, a classic example of when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. 
Oh, great analogy, right? And there you go. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for stealing my thunder, Radio Free Mormon. I will be even with you. You can use it if you like. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> awesome. So check check out Carrie's shirts in the backyard, Professor. I'm excited, Carrie, to see what comes out uh, from your content here in the near future. Thank you, my friend, for coming on tonight. Well, I'm excited for working with you two fine, fine, fine gentlemen. We'll have and, a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, we will. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to getting to know the audience. Have a, have a great night, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, he can ditch the tux now. All right. So, yeah, he can get rid of the tux, put on, uh, put on you know, swimming trunks and, uh, and head out to the jacuzzi now and take the rest of the evening off. He can put all on right. his Albert Einstein print PJs. Yeah, you got it. Um, all right. So other things that are happening right now, let's mm. – uh, let you you probably ought to share a moment of some news that happened this week and uh, kind of the loss of somebody. Yeah, I posted it on my Facebook page when I found out on Monday morning, I'm pretty sure it was, that the prior day, I believe it was the 25th of July, 2021, today's the 28th, that Robert Rittner had passed away. It was very, very sad to hear that. And, um, you know, we did that 13-hour interview on Mormon Stories Technically, John DeLynn did the interview. I was asked to tag along, and I was happy to do so and had a great uh, experience. And since that time, I was able to finagle uh, Robert Rittner's cell phone number out of him, which is one of the worst mistakes he ever made. Anybody who's given me their cell phone number can attest to that. And uh, I had the, the good fortune of calling him maybe every couple of months or so since then, so maybe uh, – half a dozen times I had spoken with him and we talked about different things and his health was a common subject that he brought up because it wasn't good. And I'm not going to go into those details. Now he had a series of challenges since the time that I first met him a year ago. And in spite of that, let me bring up something that happened behind the scenes because I posted about this on the Facebook page. I'll bring up something I didn't post about behind the scenes during those interviews. There were 13 hours. I think it was three, maybe four. I think it was three different interviews. And frequently, uh, Robert was feeling badly uh, behind the scenes. And he talked to us as we were doing the prep for the interview and talking about how he didn't really feel well. And maybe he could do 20 minutes, 30 minutes tops. And uh, we were concerned about it, but we wanted to get everything we possibly could on tape from Dr. Rittner. And he would start and he would just continue going and going. And it's like he would get a second wind if we were using Mormon language, we talk about uh, his being renewed in body. Um, and he just kept going and going and going. He just had a passion for the subject. He was a brilliant individual. And this is a huge loss to the world of Egyptology in general, to the world of Mormonism as well, and, and to me personally. So just wanted to uh, comment on that. Of course, we all know that there has been some acrimony between him and his erstwhile student, Dr. John Gee, and John Gee even noted the passing of Dr. Robert Rittner in a post that he made on his blog, that would be John Gee's blog. And you can go there and find it if you want. It's called uh, Forn Spol Fira. It's three foreign words, and I forgot what the heck the name of it was, but the subtitle is The Ancient Tale of Man. You can tell John Gee is smart because you can't understand the title of his blog. It's in a foreign language, and it might be um, Icelandic or something. I don't understand what? his apologetics either. 
<laughs> well, I think it might be Icelandic, and maybe that's a translation, the ancient tale of me. Anyway, on Monday, he posted a brief comment about Professor Rittner. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it seems that um, it seems that John Gee cannot help himself. Uh, it's supposed to be laudatory, but of course, he always has to sneak in his digs, some veiled, some not so veiled. The first paragraph is the only thing I will read. I just learned that Robert Creek, a Creech, I guess, I, I didn't know his middle name, Robert K. Rittner Jr., passed away yesterday. Professor Rittner served as my dissertation advisor until Yale University removed him from the position. And I just went, oh my gosh, face palm. John Gee, can you ever just be decent about anything? It's like, if you read the rest of it, you'll find out that, that John Gee's like playing the victim card here, that he was victimized by Robert Rittner and vituperative language. And I wanted to let John Gee know that it's not the best look to try and play the victim card against a guy who just passed away. It doesn't work, does it? No, that's all I'm saying. Because usually if you died, you are going to be the victim in that scenario. Yeah. Okay. But he does this. And I'm just so glad that Professor Rittner got to come on with uh, John DeLynn and myself and give the actual story, or at least um, being objective as possible, Robert Rittner's version of the story about John Gee's dissertation. Because if you go back and listen to it, Professor Rittner was shocked when John Gee started, and it was Dan Peterson too. It was Dan Peterson that he learned it from, that uh, the story was going around about how Professor Rittner got removed from John Gee's dissertation committee at Yale for some unspecified reason with hint, hit, nudge, nudge, impropriety being suggested by Peterson and Gee. And he does it here again when he passes away. Thanks, John Gee. Really, really nice. But that Professor Rittner got to mention that, no, the reason that he was removed from his uh, dissertation committee is because uh, Robert Rittner removed himself because he moved from Yale right at that time to the University of Chicago, where he had taught as professor ever since mm -hmm. and even held a distinguished chair uh, there. So uh, I'm glad that Robert Rittner got to present his side of that story before he passed away so it can stand in contrast and opposition to John Gee's continued attempts to besmirch Professor Rittner's name even a day after he has passed away and in a blog that is uh, supposed to be something that's uh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, well I, I appreciate, you know, you, you and I have had conversations where I knew that you were calling him from time to time and checking up on on uh, Mr. Rittner. And uh, it is, it's a tragedy anytime someone loses a life, but this person was so important to the conversation on the book of Abraham that I think essentially any Mormon whose testimony, at least in part, was deconstructed over that issue knows who Robert Rittner is. And uh, just by the comments that we put here can tell that people are deeply appreciative of what, what he gave to us Mormons to help us get out. Yes, with all, all the time he spent writing and a yeah. book and his article and all this stuff, and actually uh, being the preeminent Egyptologist, at least in the Western Hemisphere, Robert Rittner comes on with Mormon stories, which is, you know, it's a big deal to you and me, but I, I got a feeling that outside the Mormon bubble, uh, <laughs> most people don't know about it. Even inside the Mormon bubble, most people don't know about it. But he's willing to come on and give 13 hours over the course of three episodes when he is 
having medical difficulties and feeling like doing anything except for a podcast. But he was willing to do that. And I think that speaks to the magnanimousness of his spirit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, by the way, that word. Uh, Which one? The first time I heard that mag, magnanimous, whatever you just said. Magnanimousness. The first time I heard that word was out of the Book of Mormon. I think it's used in there. Is it really? Well, I death. frequently quote it's scripture magnum- without even knowing it. Yeah, it was, it was somebody's death was described with that term. I think that it's often called, is it magnanimity? But I was searching for that and I couldn't come up with it. So I went with a safe, safer magnanimousness. Yeah, yeah. So if somebody's got that scripture reference, you can post it in the comments. The other thing that happened this week, you remember when this thing happened, right? This was, uh, this is, this is church news. First presidency announces changes to general conference, including discontinuing the Saturday evening session. This was, uh, on what was that day? Cause it's 50 days ago, isn't it? June 7th. June set. Well, that's, that's almost two full months ago. Two full months ago. So Mormons were getting excited. They were going to have another time. Hey, who is this in the foreground of this picture you're showing? I thought that gays weren't supposed to express affection in church meetings. Yeah, I don't. That kind of looks like, um, oh, oh, one of the, oh, I forget what his name is. But anyway, one of the apostles from behind there. But I this don't is know. right before security got involved. This, it looks like it. Or, yeah, maybe. Maybe that's what's going on. This looks like a priesthood session, but there's certainly some intimacy and love going on there. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if it's what we th- you're thinking it is, but maybe. I don't know. Um, anyway, this is interesting to me because I thought this was a big deal, except that just, uh, just was it yesterday? Well, let's see. What is the date? I heard about it. I think it's yesterday, maybe the day before. 27. 27. Today's the 28th of it's July, so it's yesterday. Day. Yeah, the church announces Saturday evening session of General Conference will continue in new format. Now, I have a hypothesis, and uh, it here's how it goes. Uh, they made a quick decision to take out the Saturday night session, RFM. Yeah. And then they sat down, and somebody did the math and said, okay, here's what we'll have left. And the first presidency needs to speak at least twice, and every apostle needs to be able to give a talk. Mm-hmm. And then we still got to let three women speak. And we still have to allow uh, multiple members of the 70 quorums of the 70 talk. And if we get rid of a session, what it means is either a first presidency has to reduce the number of talks they give to one. They're not going to do that. The quorum of the 12 has to reduce the numbers of talks they give from one to some of them giving no talks in a conference. That ain't happening. And then the third thing was they could reduce the number of talks by members of the 70 or the three sister speakers but at, at that point, you're going to bring a whole lot of backlash for becoming even more isolated and insular um, in, in more of a vacuum and not having some diversity speaking. And so I think after they did the math RFM, they figured out that that wasn't going to work. And Heavenly Father had a change of mind. Yeah, I think maybe the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles unionized and they had uh, some discussions with the First Presidency, got him back to the table. No, isn't this incredible? You can actually tell. You can tell the Lord is hastening his work, Bill, because <laughs> because he's changing his mind a lot faster nowadays. You know, it was 126 years for him to change his mind on the priesthood ban. It was yeah. only three and a half years for him to change his mind on the policy of exclusion. Yes. Now, 50 days, 50 days for the change from no Saturday evening uh, session in general conference to, hey, it's back on. Because before we made that announcement, apparently we gave absolutely no thought to what it was we were doing 
or the ramifications. In other words, the myriad of possible permutations that would happen as a result of this. And it's only after they announce it. And by the way, the second announcement from yesterday that it's back on was made actually before the cheers from the first announcement had completely died away. That's how close in time it was. But they hadn't looked at it. Now, all of a sudden, with more prayer, God has directed them. God has directed them, hey, you know that dumbass move you made 50 days ago about canceling the Saturday evening session? Well, guess what, President Nelson? It's back on. Announce it. So that's what's happening. It seems so strange that you have prophets, seers, and revelators, 15 of them, who communicate directly with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we already know, as you're pointing out from the uh, November 2015 explanation, that these men sit in council and they explore all the permutations. And, oh, yes. Right? And they have uh, wisdom that we don't have access to. And here we are less than two months later and they've completely changed their mind or Heavenly Father did. But, you know, in Mormonism, you ought to get used to it. Heavenly Father changes his mind all the time. I know. Jesus needs to really get his stuff together because he's starting to make President Nelson look senile. <laughs> and if you read Charlie Harrell's book, This Is My Doctrine, you realize that everything in Mormonism has changed. There's nothing about the plan of salvation or Mormon theology that has been consistent over 200 years. No. And, you know, it's like from 126 years to three and a half years to 50 days, it's like it's cycling down. It's like a computer program that's cycling down. And when the Lord changes his mind from one day to the very next, that's when the second coming is going to happen. <laughs> This is a movie, by the way, and I tried to look it up because it's a computer program that's cycling down to something bad happening. I cannot remember what it was. Uh, I thought maybe it was War Games, but I don't think so. Uh, if anybody out there knows the, the movie that I'm thinking of, could you please post it in the notes in a special gold-plated no prize to the first listener who can come up with the correct answer? There. Awesome. Let's. I'm sure it's going to show up here. I'll try to watch out for it. Um, you know, it, it reminds me, you know, obviously... Uh, the idea that, you know, conference Saturday night priesthood, and, and then all of a sudden it becomes also alternating with uh, a, a woman's session as well. And now they were going to get rid of it. And now they're bringing it back and they're claiming it'll be in a completely different format. I'm actually we're, interested to see what that looks like. Cause I don't know. No, the completely different format bill is the same as every other session. It's just yeah. going to be another general session. Right. And one of the reasons they're giving is not only did God move us after further study and prayer, because we didn't get enough study and prayer. And before we made this announcement to the entire church uh, 50 days ago, um, it's because what the, the reason given is because there are, there are so many topics that need to be addressed in general conference that we need another session. That's just a general session. See, because it's not like the general authorities and the speakers at general conference repeat each other's messages hopelessly every six months. No, there's this vast array of topics and they haven't actually been able to discuss everything that they've wanted to discuss in general conference. Right. So they need this extra session to fill it out. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they're saying. No, no, I, I'm with you, and that's what I expect to happen, too. This will just be another general session because you still need to get the speakers in, but you were trying to get away from having it be pointed towards men on one half and then uh, six months later having it be pointed to women. By the way, I also think I, – I just want to – I don't know anything. I don't have any source on this. I just want you to keep your ears open and know that I said it, which is by getting rid of priesthood session and the women's session – uh, if if I were going to make a big change in the future, uh, 
that made me less uh, binary in terms of how I approached men and approached women in the church, one of the first things I would have to do would be get rid of priesthood session and women's session. And so I'm simply throwing out maybe in two years, five years, 10 years, uh, the church makes a significant drastic change that it already has planned, but needs to put all the wheels in motion to kind of set it up so that it can happen without us really knowing it happened, which tends to also be a pattern in Mormonism. So just know that you heard it here first, which is maybe they got rid of this for a reason. And there's another change they've already figured out that they now need to create space and silence around so that at some point they can make that change. Um, anyway, um, w- one of the things I had asked earlier in the show, uh, in the comments for people to put Uh, If they want to ask RFM or myself a question to put it in there, I'm having trouble getting back to the oldest comments. So I'm hoping listeners, if you can help us out, if you will start to put some questions in, we'll try to hit some of these Um, RFM, anything else on your mind before we move to the ask me anything uh, segment, president Nelson's airplane story from last week. Oh, please. Let's use that as a setup. Talk about that for a moment, what you've noticed in the last week And in the meantime, I'll try to get some of these questions uh, copied over um, so that I don't lose them a second time. Well, I will tell you that in the intervening week since last time we met together and talked about President Nelson's airplane crash in Delta, Utah from 1976, um, I have been contacted in various means or seen comments made by about half a dozen pilots and all of them, all of them have had the same basic uh, message that they find this story unbelievable as well. And for the same reasons that we were putting it out there. So it does appear that this story has teeth in it and the pilots who listen to it and who know something about aviation and know something about flying small Piper two engine planes, look at this and go, no, this didn't happen the way it's being described. Not only is it internally inconsistent with what would have happened, it's also inconsistent and contradicted by the documentary evidence from the CAB log. Yeah, you and I have forwarded these back and forth to each other. I think I think it's five, if not six pilots, as you're pointing out, have reached out to us. And each of them to a T said, when I heard the story, it didn't add up. And as you guys explained it very well, uh, the more we know about the details of this event, the, the less likely anything uh, similar to what President Nelson described occurred. Yes, there's even a listener to the show, and I'll give his name because he posts under it on my, uh, it's actually on the RFM webpage, I think is where he's posted this. His name's Roger V. Taylor. He's retired. He's on Social Security, but he has publicly made a challenge that he will award a $100 prize to anybody who can come up with an NTSB report, National, um, oh, what is that? National Transportation Safety Board an NTSB report that actually confirms President Nelson's story. So there's a prize that's waiting out there for the person who can come up with a story that confirms a report that confirms President Nelson's story, as opposed to the report that we found, which disconfirms his story. Yeah. And I'll, by the way, I'll throw another 300 bucks into that. So it's a $400 pot at this point. Well, I'll throw a hundred into it to make it an even 500. I love it. So there's 500 bucks. If somebody can find the actual 
uh, report of this accident. And by the way, if this event occurred the way we talked about this last week, uh, if an engine uh, blows up, it's going to have a report. If uh, flammable material gets on the plane and it's on fire, it's going to have a report. If the plane has to do a death spiral, it's going to be in the report. Um, again, there's just no such thing as these things happening and there being no report. That just makes no sense. And if you're going to side with that, you're essentially siding with uh, less rational conspiracy theories uh, rather than where the facts lead us. Right. And I had another listener who uh, saw something in this um, this biography by Sherry Dew of President Nelson that came out two years ago in 2019. And I, uh, he, the listener, I'll say he for him uh, or her, uh, messaged me these two pictures. One is of the cover of the book and one is from page 115, which is very, very interesting to me. And I sent those to you. Do you have those available to you? Okay, say that again. What the yeah, two pictures? Let me pull up. Um, sorry, I wasn't ready with that. It's okay. I'm here to keep you on your toes. The first picture is the cover of the book with a uh, picture, a headshot of President Nelson. Let's see here. Yeah, believe it or not, I don't actually have this book, so I didn't look it up myself. All right, let me. My so, apologies to share no, 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 it. No, I yeah. Let's. Oops. All right, so let me put this up on the screen, and we'll make it a little bigger. Um, easiest way to do this, open. Ta-da. So there's the first one. There you go. So there's the book, right? Yeah. Uh, Insights from a Prophet's Life, Russell M. Nelson, and then below it is the picture of him, and then below that is Sherry Dew. And now on page 115, we've got this great story, which we didn't cover. It doesn't no, have to do with an airplane, but it does have to do with his – uh, inspiration and his saving the life of a general authority. This is amazing. Okay, so here's the deal is that this chapter, which starts on page 115, recounts the story of how God intervened to inspire Russell and Nelson to suddenly leave from a business trip. I think it was a business trip. It might have been a church trip. It was a trip of some sort. And apparently it was in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I'm kind of looking at the um, uh, the somewhat small uh printing there. But uh, he's out there with Danzel, his first wife. So uh, this is some time ago. And he gets this impression. I have to leave. I have to go back to Salt Lake City. And so they pack up their bags. Immediately, they're on the next flight. He lands. He walks into the clinic. And the first words out of his mouth is, who's looking for me? Right? Yeah. Who needs me? And then, they, they because apparently this is so long ago, telephones had not been invented yet. So he can't call from Colorado Springs to his clinic and say, hey, is there anything going on? And when he lands at the airport in Salt Lake City, he can't call him. No, there's no, no telephonic communication at this time. This is prehistoric. So he actually has to walk into the clinic to ask who's looking for me. At least that's why I think the story is recounted. And they say, well, there's this general authority and he's having some problems with his heart. And you're here in the nick of time. So President Nelson to the rescue and he saves the life of Paul H done. You can't write this stuff. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Sherry do is essentially taking the biggest fable teller in LDS church history. Although I have to say at this point, Nelson and Holland are getting close. I think um, there's a competition. Yeah. And, and you would think you and I were talking about this this morning. You would think if Paul H Dunn is involved in anything, all the church leaders would go from here on out. We're just not mentioning this guy. Let's not remind anybody about him. And they don't stop, do they? They just keep doing it. 
No, Sherry do. Uh, there, there had to have been a discussion about whether we should include this story. And apparently they held their nose. They published it. And uh, just hoping that everybody's kind of forgotten about Elder Dunn. And if you notice the the heading underneath the, um, the, the picture of Paul H. Dunn there, that's a nice general authority headshot you can tell. It says, Dr. Nelson saved Elder Paul H. Dunn's life. And life there is kind of obliterated by the green going around the picture. But that's what it says. Dr. Nelson saved Elder Paul H. Dunn's life. And he did it by revelation. So it's very interesting that at this time, even before I knew about this chapter in his book, I was speculating. Others were speculating. Just having a little bit of fun with the idea that President Nelson seems to embellish his stories miraculously to such a degree that maybe he was trying to compete with Paul H. Dunn, who was the he was number one on the block when it came to these miraculous stories. I mean, in in this book now, uh, President Nelson saves the life of the man who single-handedly licked the entire Imperial Army of Japan. That's what he did when he saved Paul H. Dunn's life. So how do you compete with that? Well, you compete with it by saving his life by revelation. That's how. Let me ask you, RFM, as much as we know Paul H. Dunn was pulling out stories out of his ass, and as much as President Nelson now has a deep pattern of pulling stories out of his ass, what do you think the chances are that a story that involves President Nelson saving Paul H. Dunn, what do you think the chances are that that story is true? I don't know, but I understand if you actually turn the page of this, you find out that there was some kind of uh, artillery that had hit Paul H. Dunn when he was in a landmine. Yeah. And what happened was that President Nelson was in another, he was in another foxhole just a little ways away, but he couldn't get to him because of the shelling. And finally the daylight came and the shelling stopped and he ran over and he found uh, President, I mean, Elder Paul H. Dunn, he was all, he was all shot to pieces, but he saved his life by performing impromptu heart surgery. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's so obscure. I hope that people recognize that as a riff on one of the stories that Paul H. Dunn was famous for telling. This happened in uh, 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 Mozambique. What was the what's the name of the te- what's the place? Mozambique. Yeah, Mozambique. Yeah, this is where that happened, right? Uh, probably. Yeah, because what was it? Nelson was at gunpoint, and Paul H. Dunn was at gunpoint, and gun. You know, Dunn. I think covered up a grenade with his chest or something. Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole list of stories we could make that embellish this one and make it even better and. We're just doing what LDS leaders do. No, President um, Nelson is building more temples than Gordon B. Hinckley, and he's telling more miracle stories than Paul H. Dunn. <laughs> he is the best church president ever, ever. Well, he is. Absolutely. Oh and I think he's bent on proving it. Yeah. All right. So on to the ask me anything. By the way, folks, keep putting questions in the comments. We'll try to get to some as many of these as possible. RFM, I'll start off with you, and then I'll answer the same question. Um, what was your shelf breaker? Like what was the thing people want to know? What was the thing that you went from going like church is true to uh, maybe it isn't, maybe something's wrong here. Mm. There is no thing for me. And it's something that um, I've been asked before and I've come up with no answer at Sunstone a couple of years ago when I showed up there for the first time, the question was asked and I, I gave the response about, you know, uh, I have no idea what it was. It's like I woke up and the entire house was burned down around me. Uh, It was like it it was already gone. But I've been doing a lot more introspection. I am one of the most unself-aware people you could ever possibly meet. I'm so unaware of myself, my internal motivations. And I've spent some time over the last 
couple of years, actually introspecting on that. And it is a long answer. It's not the answer I originally thought it was going to be. I thought it would have to do with my 10 years of being involved in apologetics. It doesn't. Actually, that was a red herring that led me down the wrong path to try and understand my own motivations. I'm understanding it better. And frankly, frankly, here's a plug. Sorry. I know you didn't ask for this. Um, it's a long answer, and I'm going to be not giving it tonight uh, but because it's so dang long. But uh, I'm going to be on, was it Mormon Stories here next month in August to explain in some detail what it was that happened with me. And it wasn't something that happened. It was over the course of decades. Was, was there anything like there was, you know, there was a week where you went to church and you thought Mormonism was still the, the, the true and living church. And then whatever it was the next week or two weeks later, whatever it was, suddenly you're, you're either not going or you're not believing. Was there any things that were happening around them that time that you shifted? No, no, there wasn't. And like uh, if a kid stops believing in Santa Claus, okay. I mean, you could have a really remarkable and memorable incident of waking up, going downstairs or staying up and seeing your dad, you know, putting presents under the tree or whatever, you know, and all of a sudden, bam, you understand, right? So that's dramatic. You can point to that. But me, I never had that happen. And so I could not tell you when I stopped believing in Santa Claus or what happened. There was just sort of this process that I went through and I can tell you some markers, but I couldn't tell you when it happened or point to anything that caused it. Gotcha. Good, good. Um, in terms of me, it was three things, really. When John DeLynn interviewed me as a sitting bishop, uh, that interview, towards the end of it, John asked me, he said, let's just pretend for a minute that we live in bizarro world and um, that gay marriage is what's approved and uh, heterosexual marriage is what is forbidden by the church. And you convert to Mormonism, which I did. You convert to Mormonism. You're in love with the gospel. And the church teaches you that your attraction to women is going to be not okay, and you are to abstain from any sort of uh, romance or intimacy in a relationship with someone else. So no dating, no kissing, no hand-holding, uh, no intimacy of that kind. And what would you do? And I remember, to, I remember that conversation, and I remember that moment, and it was deeply impactful. I was inside my own head going, that wouldn't be right, and I wouldn't go along with it. Even if I thought the church was true, I wouldn't be okay living out my life void of intimacy and connection with somebody on a romantic level. And and I knew in my head, you know, the argument is, well, they're single brothers and single sisters, and they have to follow the rules. But the difference is they can hope for something to change Whereas in that scenario, I could not, neither can our LGBT brothers and sisters uh, in the gospel of Jesus Christ do that today, right? And so that was one moment. And like you, it was a thousand little cuts. That was a big one. Uh, if you go back to when I had that conversation with John, I immediately started the podcast afterward. And about six months later, I start reaching out to folks like uh, Wendy Montgomery, who was one of the original folks uh, with Mama Dragons. Uh, and her son, Jordan, and I, I developed a really deep friendship with the Montgomerys. Uh, I talked to, I interviewed Mitch Main. Um, I interviewed uh, Kevin Klusterman, who was a sitting bishop who was standing against the church on uh, LGBT issues. And those interviews came one after the other as those conversations were happening because I was inside my own head. 
um, trying to figure out how I could be Mormon and um, disagree fully with their stances on that issue. The uh, second thing that happened was the CES letter. I remember wanting to do um, a podcast series where I would respond to the CES letter and solve the problems. And so I printed off all the pages, RFM, sat down and started reading it. And I remember the moment I took it and I put it on top of our piano. And I, the thought in my head was, I'm not going to be able to rebut this. So I'm just going to set it down and leave it alone. I knew I couldn't solve those problems. Oh, you're on mute, my friend. That's okay, because I was interrupting you anyway. Good. You put it on the proverbial shelf. I uh, Yeah, the piano was holding it up, and I never got back to it because I didn't have good answers. I know Jim Bennett's tried. I know Fair Mormon's tried. The reality is I was intellectually honest enough to acknowledge that I could have given the same answers those guys did, but my answers would have been less rational than the critic's conclusion on those issues. And so I knew that I couldn't do it. And then the third thing was the November 2015 policy. I've said this a, a million times. When it got to November 5th, 2015, I knew the church wasn't true. If you go back to my podcast, I'm still presenting things faithful, faithfully because I really wanted to slow people down and give them a chance to process all of this and to deconstruct it. But I knew the church's truth claims were in trouble, but I thought the church could be good. And then November 5th, 2015, when that policy happened, it was just like a, a light switch went on, and I knew the church not only was almost assuredly not true, it couldn't even be good. And that was the moment where I was like, I'm done. I'm, I'm done investing myself in trying to reconcile this. Now I'm just going to try to be um, honest to the issues I'll, I'll try to walk the line and let's, let's see if they'll let me talk about this stuff in an honest way. Um, so there's that. The, the next question here, what is, somebody wants to know what our biggest criticisms of ex-Mormonism is. Uh, any thoughts mm -hmm. there on what criticisms you have about post-Mormonism or those of us on this side of belief? Oh, sure. Um, the same criticism as I have of many uh, people who are in Mormon. So it's not exclusive to them. But it's been observed that a lot of times people take the same kind of um, black and white thinking, yeah. either or, false dichotomy or dilemma, whatever you want to call it, that they have in Mormonism. And then they've just shifted it over to the other side of the playing field. Um, and everything's black and white. Before, when they were Mormon, it was you know black and white in favor of Mormonism. Now it's black and white against Mormonism. And I think that would be my biggest criticism. I think it's important to try and take in all the evidence that you can lay your hands on and try your best to make those all come together in some way in order to justify whatever conclusion it is that you've reached. Um, sometimes all the evidence doesn't fit into one conclusion. Sometimes there's outliers. And if there's outliers, I still think it's important to mention what the outliers are in spite of your conclusion, so that whoever's listening can hear all the evidence that you personally are aware of. There's always going to be, I think, probably more evidence that you don't know. Uh, Mormonism seems to be an inexhaustible mine of information, and there's always new stuff being found, even in old documents. There's uh, even old documents that still need to be found in the church archives <laughs> because they're, they're still missing, right? Pages cut out of books. So that would be my, my main um, 
my main criticism. I think that no matter what side of any position you are, are on, the search for truth is benefited most by a willingness to try and consider all evidence from whatever side it comes. I love that. And, and I'll add to that. I think mine's along the same lines, which is uh, my problem with ex-Mormonism is that everything that could possibly be seen as negative towards the church, folks will go on ex-Mormon Reddit and put a post out and try to try to garner up some enthusiasm about this, this idea or this concept or this thought that they have. And I personally prefer to stay away from the minor complaints. Um, I want to walk people into the absurdity of Mormonism's truth claims. I want to walk people into them recognizing like there's no other way that uh, this goes together other than the critic's conclusion. And I think that's best served by staying on the strongest points and not being seen as being petty. And you and I both talk about this at times from years ago. You and I were very... Uh, we very easily were persuaded to dismiss criticisms of the church decades ago because the criticisms that you and I were finding were the silly things such as the Book of Mormon saying that uh, Jesus wasn't born in uh, Bethlehem, but he was born in Jerusalem. And and then the apologists would come in and say, well, there's the city and then there's the area. And, and it was so easy to dismiss that evangelical Mormonism. And um, what I found when I took criticism seriously and really explored the problematic issues, I found that the, the evangelicals who are arguing against Mormonism are doing a really piss poor job and they ought to just stay out of the conversation that ex-Mormons, and again, I know we're criticizing ex-Mormonism, but ex-Mormons tended to know what the real weighty issues were. Blacks in the priesthood, uh, Book of Abraham, Joseph Smith's polygamy, 19th century material, and all of Joseph Smith's uh, uh, scriptural revelations. And those are the kinds of things that I think we ought to stay laser focused on because they they point so, as I always say, demonstrably towards the church not being true. And if we lay out weak arguments or pick the weakest of stuff just to heap it on the pile— you're giving the believer something that they can easily dismiss. And if they dismiss a couple of things like you and me, they're prone to dismiss all of it and just get away from it because they, they think that all the arguments are weak anyway. Yeah. That's why Ed Decker, Ed Decker, excuse me. And the God makers was the biggest gift of the Mormon church that they had had in forever. And Walter Martin and, and some of that nonsense, right? Yeah. A Jew, you know, Jacob using a Jew, in the Book of Mormon, Brethren a Jew at the end of, cha of chapter seven, I think it is, and saying, why is this French word in the Book of Mormon? Why are but, English words in the Book of Mormon, right? That's what I thought, yeah. Why yeah. are English words in the Book of Mormon? <laughs> I mean, my gosh, it's a translation. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the thing is that when you do that, you do provide the, the opposition, whatever the opposition is, and this is a general principle. If you've got three good arguments to make and one bad argument or one weak argument, you don't make the weak argument you make the three good arguments because if you make three good arguments and a weak argument, then what the opposition is going to do is they're going to eviscerate the weak argument and then walk away as if they destroyed everything. Are you still muted, Bill? I am. Thank you, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, somebody asked if I ever, I get this one a lot, by the way, if I ever heard from anyone at my disciplinary court. So again, you, you know, you were talking about how we released the audio 
on YouTube and it's got a ton of listens at this point, more than some of the older content, other older content that we've been re-releasing on YouTube. And, you know, I'm in that room with those 15 or so men, 15 men and a clerk, I think. And, uh, I think I laid out the criticisms pretty straightforward, pretty concise. And some of the comments by some of the high councilmen indicated that some of them kind of struggled if knowing like, if all this stuff is true, then we've got a problem on our hands. I never really anticipated hearing from any of them, and I never have. I've never heard from any of those high councilmen or the members of that stake presidency mm -hmm. um, from that council going forward, other than the stake president and another guy or two dropping off the decision a couple of days later. So, no, nothing from that. Yeah. Um, Maybe unbeknownst to you, one of them went off into the woods somewhere and started a small church and started baptizing people. Maybe, maybe there's an Alma the Younger there. I, I don't know. Alma the Elder, I should say. Maybe there is, but I've never got any word back. Um, somebody's asking what what we think is the most disturbing issue in the church. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, RFM? What is the most disturbing issue in the church? Wow. Yeah, yeah. if you could only, if you if you needed to help somebody recognize the church wasn't true, what would be the thing you would go to? Can I go back to the, the question? Can I reframe the question? Please. There are no gay members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. No, I'm sorry. That was a little el Elder Bednar humor. <laughs> anyway, you're saying, what the heck are you talking about? Okay. Um, let's go back two weeks to when Lindsay Hansen Park was on the show. Yeah. You know, uh, Young I bride. think that that... It's going to be the most difficult thing for, for people to understand, probably because it seems kind of inexcusable on a variety of fronts. And by the way, I was making a joke about Elder Bednar, but the serious part about the question, the way you phrased it is, I don't, I try not to deal in issues of the church being true or the church not being true because it's meaningless. It is absolutely meaningless to talk about if something is true or not true. I prefer to frame the issue as, is the church what it claims to be? Okay. As opposed to talking about truth, because truth is subjective. Yeah. We think of it as objective, but it's completely subjective, as we know, as anybody knows who's been to a fast and testimony meeting recently. So I think that that is probably the single most troublesome issue. It's not a peripheral issue. It's with us today. It was practiced by the founding uh, president and prophet. And I know that there are people out there who shake their heads and say, no, he never practiced it. But I've got to tell you, the earth isn't flat. And I only say that because believing that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy is a fringe theory akin to believing that the earth is flat, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the way I would answer this is I think it depends on the person. I think some people are more disturbed by trauma to individuals. In that case, I think polygamy or the LGBT issue or race in the priesthood for the reason of the trauma that was incurred by people of color will be the, be the kinds of issues that will bother them. I think some people are more analytical. And I think the idea of prophets teaching false things and in terms of race and the priesthood or the book of Abraham, I think would be another good example of issues that would bother those kinds of folks. And I, I just think that there's enough issues out there that no matter what kind of person you are and what kind of thinking you do, 
there is enough data to arrive at what you're saying, which is the church is not what it claims to be. Right. Like I've said before, uh, the church is on the horns of a dilemma today based upon things we've talked about before, which I won't repeat here. And that is that if Joseph Smith was not a prophet, then the leaders of the church today are not prophets because they have to have that connection. Right. Yeah. And on the other hand, if Joseph Smith was a prophet, then the leaders of the church today sure as hell aren't prophets because they don't do anything like what Joseph Smith did. They're pale imitations at best. If Joseph Smith was indeed a prophet, they're pale imitations of it. And I think that may be partially behind what is behind President Nelson's apparent perceived need to come up with miracles to show that the spirit is alive and well in the current church and miracles are ongoing. Even though when you look at them closely, they seem to evaporate like the morning mist before the rising sun. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I got, I just got a great idea. I know there are people who listen, who do believe that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. Dang it. If there are any people out there who are well-versed in that subject, who would be willing to come on the show and debate Lindsay Hansen park or another suitable uh, alternative from the other side. Yeah. Please contact us. And we'll see what we can do to set it up because this is a, an issue, I think, of perennial interest. I ha- I'm not uh, encyclopedic in my knowledge of it. My understanding of the arguments on both sides is that the, the vast weight of evidence is on the side of those who uh, believe that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. And the opposite side has very little evidence to support their position. And it's basically trying to uh, make what I would consider unreasonable interpretations of the evidence that shows he did to show that he didn't. And actually there's some subgroup that's going on with Brigham Young in charge in the secret chamber and that Joseph Smith doesn't know anything about it. It's all going on behind Joseph Smith's back. So he's actually telling the truth when he's publicly saying, Hey, I'm not practicing polygamy. Right. Um, The problem there is that either Joseph Smith was practicing polygamy and lying about it publicly or he was perhaps the most incompetent administrator of any organization to ever exist to not know that this is going on right under his nose with members of his own apostles. Yeah. Amen. Um, People, one of the questions that somebody asked is, is there, is there anything in Mormonism worth keeping? Is, Is there something good that, you know, you find in Mormonism that isn't easily accessible somewhere else? Well, I don't know about the things that exist everywhere else. So that part of the question, I don't know. But absolutely, there's great stuff about Mormonism. I had a fantastic time in Mormonism. I joined it when I was 18. I had very little identity. Um, I was still a work in progress. I mean, I don't know who the heck I am at 18. Other people know a lot more about who they are at 18. And here is my identity handed to me on a silver platter. And it was a great identity. I'm a child of God. I'm going to be a priesthood holder. I'm going to go on a mission and preach the gospel to the people of Japan. Uh, it's fantastic. I'm going to go on to create worlds um, and, you know, have my own planet. At least back then when I joined the church, I got my own planet. Nowadays, I'm not so sure. But but it was fantastic. And it locked me in. It gave me everything that I needed to um, to know. It gave me my entire life's course, Right. And at the time, the first few years in the church, I'd say up to maybe the first 10 years in the church, it did great things for me. And it was probably at the end of about the 10th year. This is 1988, by the way, right? 
1988, it starts coming to me that maybe the idea of the church telling me what my whole life is going to be like isn't a completely positive thing. There might be some drawbacks to that somewhere along the line. And so I think it's great for people in what uh, somebody calls, you know who it is, and I don't, uh, the first half of life. When you're looking for identity, you're looking for structure. But at some point, at some point, when you have been working and working uh, in the ballet class, at the bar, and doing all the exercises they have to do for half an hour to 45 minutes before, uh, at the beginning of every class, at some point, you got to let go of the bar and actually dance. And Mormonism is great at giving you exercises to do at the bar, but that's forever. You never are allowed to let go of the bar and dance. And that's what I think the second half of life is. And that's what I found I'm able to do after having graduated from Mormonism. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll probably have a harder time answering this question because I, I I do agree with, I think it was maybe, I don't know, it was Randy or one of the guys from Infants on Thrones who said that, you know, whatever whatever is unique about Mormonism isn't good and whatever is good about Mormonism isn't unique. And I, to a, to a large degree, I agree with that. And I'll tell you a little story. A guy comes into the pawn shop uh, two days ago and he walks in. He had just moved to Southern Utah. He is not Mormon, never Mormon. And he saw my bumper sticker, which says mormondiscussionpodcast.org on it. And uh, he came in and he said, tell me about the Mormons. And at first I thought it was a listener who was just playing a joke because that's happened before too. And uh, I said, all right, well, I'll tell you. And so I explained to him what who Mormons are and the fact that they occupy Utah to a great extent and a little bit about the church history. I told him how messy it was. I told him that Mormons are super nice. And he, he said, yeah, that's what I've heard too is Mormons are nice. And I said, but that niceness is kind of a facade. The motive behind them, you know, what's going on is they really want you to join their church. And so there's a lot of kindness that's geared towards trying to get you to get baptized. And the moment you say you're not interested, a lot of that kind of kindness and fellowship stops and they no longer pay as much attention to you. And he said, he said, I don't drink. I don't smoke. Um, I said, you're going to have a hard time connecting with post-Mormons too, because they have this shared common journey. I said, if worse comes to worse, I said, one thing you could do if you live down here is to pretend you believe. And if you pretend you believe and show up at church on Sunday, you will instantly have community. You'll have a family. You'll have people who can help you move in and move out and people who will bring you a casserole when you're not feeling good. And somebody will come over and clean your house if you're disabled and like they'll take care of you. Um, and so if you if you can't find any kind of community out here, I will tell you that one option is to pretend you believe in Mormonism and you'll have an instant community. Um, I think Mormonism does community well, although it's very tribal. It's only so long as you fit in the box. It's only so long as you outwardly um, check all the boxes that a good Mormon checks. And as long as you do that, Mormonism does community pretty dang well, but it isn't real the moment you don't, let me say it this way. On this side of life, I love finding people who are different than me. Um, most of my friends have a common shared story of leaving the church, but they also are still wrestling with and think differently about the big questions of the universe. And I like that. Um, Mormonism inside doesn't do that. You, you, all, you all have to believe for the most part, the same thing. And diversity isn't going to be very welcomed. Um, but that would be what I would say. Is there anything worth keeping? I would love to see some way for the secular world to create community 
The problem is once you understand myths are myths, it becomes almost impossible. Um, anyway. All right. So somebody asked, how do we prevent the backfire effect? How do you, RFM, when you do your material, when you create content, when you create an episode of Radio Free Mormon or when you put an, uh, an episode together for us here on Mormonism Live, do you have any thoughts in your head about how you avoid your listeners um, doubling down and strengthening their belief in the church? Yes. Yeah. And so how do you combat that? Yeah. Well, what I do is uh, I constantly, if you pay attention, and even if you're not paying attention, you probably notice this. I've done it already tonight. Is I couch what I say in terms of, I think, it seems to me, I believe. And so that's what I do. So quite often, even though my content is very fact-specific and data-driven, there's a lot of research that goes into it. When it comes to the conclusions that I'm talking about, uh, I just say this is it seems to me this is what I think, because then I'm not challenging anybody. I'm just telling people what I think. And that's just a per it's a me statement, right? One of those I statements that you talk about sometimes in your relationship podcast, Bill. Yeah, I just talk about how it seems to me. And in fact, um, if I were ever talk to someone personally about things, yeah, I don't say this is the way it is conclusion, right? I say, this is how I think, this is how it struck me. This is how I processed, how I processed it, right? Because you can't argue with someone else's experience or what they think or how it seems to them. What you can do and what it usually generates is another person saying, oh, okay, well, this is how I saw it, right? Every now and then you'll get people say, well, you're wrong and this is the way it really is. Well, if that's the way they wanna be fine, you can lead a horse to water, right? But I find that uh, using I statements and talking about just my personal experience is the best way to prevent the backfire effect. And in fact, it invites people usually to be more open and sharing what their personal feelings and beliefs are. Beautiful, beautiful. Let's go about another 10 minutes or so. And I don't know that we're going to necessarily do the phone part tonight because we're giving people a chance to post comments. And I think taking a phone call and kind of allowing someone to ask a question without it being somewhat vetted uh, might be a little difficult. Um, is in preventing the backfire effect, I'll simply say that I think with you and with me and with John DeLynn and with Lindsay Hansen Park and the year of polygamy and with the CES letter, um, all of those materials, if taken collectively, seem to be overwhelming. In other words, if somebody listens to Radio Free Mormon episode one through, I don't know where you're at now, 165 or something like 225, that. 225, I think. 225. If somebody listens to episode one through 225, it, it essentially becomes apparent to most people that it doesn't add up. If you listen to Mormon discussion one through whatever I'm on, same thing. If you listen to the entire year of polygamy or read the entire CES letter, Essentially, what happens is you're giving the anecdote for the backfire effect, which is you overwhelm them to the degree to which the backfire effect no longer works. And you meet that threshold. And uh, I still, to this day, run into people who go, Bill, I've been listening to you since the beginning. I came in last week. I've been listening to you since you started up. And honestly, I just, I took you, I, I saw you as a person of integrity. I listened to every episode and it got to be episode 100 and I just knew the church wasn't true. And um, I think your program does that extremely well, Radio Free Mormon. And I think the CES letter and Europolygamy and some of these other things do it super well also. 
And uh, I think overwhelming people is the secret. So if people listen to one episode, maybe, maybe not, if they like our content enough, they will develop some sort of relationship with you and I. You've run into people who said, I, I, you know, I've never met you, but I like you and I feel like I know you and I like what you do. And, and they develop that relationship by listening to us week in and week out. And we're constantly producing content that dives into this messiness and, and shines a light on it. And I think when the people who stick with it, there's little choice but for them to deconstruct and start to uh, dissolve themselves of the foundational truth claims of Mormonism. What you said reminded me of something else, which is one of the main things that I think helps with that is that me personally, see, I just did it again. Me personally, I am not out to convert anybody to any viewpoint. I am not trying to get people to leave the church. I'm not trying to get people to question the church. I'm not trying to do any of that. That's not my goal. My goal is simply to explore the church, hopefully do it in an entertaining and educating educational way uh, and uh, have fun with it because there's so much that's fascinating and so much stuff that you don't talk about or don't hear about in church. I mean, in church, you, they spend 99% of the time talking about 1% of the church history, right? And it's the same 1% over and over and over again. There's a lot out there and it's very, very interesting. So I think that that is important for me uh, because I'm not out trying to convert anybody. This is one of the great benefits of graduating from Mormonism is that for the decades I was a member of the church, I felt this constant pressure that I've got to try and convert people to Mormonism. And now I don't have that anymore. And it's, and I haven't transferred it over to the other side to try and get convert people out of Mormonism. It's just this huge release of um, pressure from my shoulders. I've mentioned it to you before that, one of the great pleasures of not being active in the church anymore is that at the end of every month, I don't have to feel guilty about not doing my home teaching. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a much better home teacher now. I've got friends that are really close. And then I've got this extended group of people. I just, I love, but I maybe don't hang out with them as much, but once a month or once every other month, I'll, I'll just have a party at my home and invite all these people. And, um, I, I love being in space with the people that are in my world and I want to catch up with them often and I want to see what's going on with them. And I'm looking after them in my own way. Um, home teaching, that program was, it forced friendships and it forced relationships and that never works. But on this side of things, being allowed to pick and choose the people you like and associate with, uh, I think I've done a pretty good job of building a, a big group of those folks and, kind of loving them to death. Yeah, I think that you have. And guess what? None of those people that you invite to parties think that they're a project. No, none of them think they're a project. No, that's very true. Um, somebody asked about uh, the time I was on Infants on Thrones, if I was bothered by the way I was treated. And and I, I would have to go back and find the episode number. And But it was, it was three of them. Uh, I know it was Glenn. Um, oh, man, I'm going to be... Who was that guy who was such a butthead to you? He's the lawyer. Yeah. I, again, I, unfortunately, I'm just going blank at the moment, but uh, folks can put the names in there. Um, I wasn't bothered. I mean, a little bit at the time, but not really. And um, since then, I've actually built somewhat of a friendship with Glenn Osland. Him and I have recorded several episodes together regarding his work, which is a new podcast called Bathing with God. 
and I, I just think the world of him. I hung out with him maybe four months ago. I uh, went down to Arizona to hang out with some friends, and he came over the one night and played guitar. Hmm. And he plays guitar dang good. Really? Such a, yeah, he was such a fun evening. So, um, but anyway, just I've, I like those guys, and I wouldn't have a problem getting a beer with them or uh, having them hang out at one of my parties or going to hang out with them for a weekend. They're, I think they're all a blast, and they all, you know, they, they carry their own trauma from all these issues and they approach these things sometimes the same and sometimes different, but I, I like each of them. Um, yeah. Glenn is, you can tell he's a great guy because he went on his mission to Japan. Yeah. See, that's what, that's where all the good, all the good missionaries go to Japan. Matt, Matt. Yeah. It was Matt that gave me a hard time. And then I, I, I should definitely know this name because him and I have talked multiple times, but I'm just going blank, but he's the softer uh, of the group. And so maybe somebody can throw his name in the comments, but I should know that. And I'm shame on me for not. Well, there's uh, Bob, there's Tom, there's Tom, Randy. Tom. Yeah, Tom is super okay. soft and, and Tom and I have talked on multiple occasions and I consider him a friend um, as well. Um, somebody's asking where we stand on Jesus. Uh, do you believe in Jesus? Liter- like a literal risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Where do you approach that issue from RFM? I think that, uh, um, I'm going to say a couple things about that without directly answering the question. So if I don't answer the question, it's because it's intentional, just yeah. so you know. But I'll, I'll try and say some important things about it, though. Um, I think that Jesus is an extremely important character. Um, and mainly because not only does he help out the marginalized, okay, but he spoke truth to power. It's very common in Mormonism to paint Jesus as this lovey-dovey kind of guy who all he does is go around loving people and kissing them and hugging them and helping them out, right? I remember we were hearing a talk in sacrament meeting once and I lean over the person next to me, it's years ago, lean over the person next to me and says, you know, you got to step on somebody's toes to get crucified. Yeah, right. And he did (laughs) over and over again in their face publicly. And, uh, And not as nice as I am. He wasn't using me statements or I statements, right? He was, he was really, really uh, going at it, going for the jugular. So uh, speaking truth to power, not brooking the nonsense and the hypocrisy from the religious leaders of his religion. Okay. That's who he's standing up to. Those are the people who really hacked him off the religious leaders of his religion. So I think that a lot of people who are listening to this can understand that kind of attitude can also understand the kind of cojones it took to stand up to that, especially when, the worst thing that the leaders of, of Jesus's religion could do to him wasn't just withdraw his membership. They could do a lot worse. And they, according to the gospels, they worked with the, um, the government power uh, held by the Romans in order to, to crucify Jesus. So I think he's extremely, extremely important. I think that um, Jesus is exactly the kind of being the risen Jesus, the atoning Jesus, the one who died that through his blood sins could be forgiven is exactly the kind of Jesus that we would expect or that I would expect. I statement, right? Uh, that I would expect a Jewish religion, a Jewish uh, sub-religion, a branch of Judaism uh, to conceive of after Jesus unexpectedly was killed against all their hopes and their religious beliefs, because he could not die. According to their religious beliefs, if he was the Messiah, he was going to come and he was going to overthrow the occupying force of the Romans, set at the throne of David and rule from Jerusalem on that throne forever. 
under a united uh, Israel once again. That's what they believed about Jesus. It's what they believed about all the messiahs that were coming down the pike. It's like they say in, um, oh, what is it? Jesus Christ superstar, you Jews breed messiahs by the sackful, I think is what they say. Anyway, I think it might be a line from Pilate. Anyway, there's a lot, of, but that's what they believe. So Jesus does the unthinkable and that's he gets himself killed. So what are we going to do with that? Well, it's going to cause a great deal of disruption, a great deal of rethinking of what it is that he's actually going to do. And and he becomes two things. First off is he becomes a sacrifice for sin, that through his blood, sin is shed. And it is through his death that we can be forgiven of our sins, which sounds very, very normal to Christians and probably to Jews as well, right? But this is not something that is universal uh, amongst religions in any way. Uh, many religions have the idea of you have to make sacrifices to God to propitiate God, to get him to do what you wanted to do or to thank him for doing something that was really good, right? You've got to make those sacrifices. It is much rarer, and I don't know of any other religions, but I am not encyclopedic, uh, other than Judaism, that believe that people had sin that there was this thing called sin that people had through doing things the way God didn't want them done or doing things that God didn't want done or vice versa. We all know what sin is, right? But it's this construct. I mean, it's not like you can point at it and say, oh, there's a sin. You know, it's a construct. So there's this idea that, that we have sin, that people have sin, and that we have to sacrifice a living, breathing animal and spill their blood in order to have that sin forgiven by God. And that's, of course, what Leviticus is all about in the Old Testament. So that's Jew, that's Judaism. Here comes Jesus, who is a Jewish Messiah, who doesn't, boy, I'm sorry, I'm starting to monologue now, who doesn't uh, set up the, uh, the throne in Israel. He gets himself killed. So it's very natural to go from there to, okay, he's a sacrifice. Why is he a sacrifice? Well, because that's the whole history of Judaism. That's the fundamental idea of Judaism is that there has to be a sacrifice of blood in order for there to be a forgiveness of sins. So I think that he's exactly what I would expect to have um, after he died and because he died. And the other thing, and I'll make this a lot shorter, is that we can know really, really clearly when we read the New Testament exactly what it is that all of Jesus's disciples expected him to do in his lifetime. Because when he died, Everything that Jesus was expected to do in his lifetime got deferred to the second coming. So when you read the book of the Revelation of John and you see Jesus coming in glory and riding the white horse and leading the armies and destroying and then sitting on uh, destroying all of his opponents, casting Satan into the, the whole um, the whole nine yards, sitting on that throne. Right. And then ruling and reigning forever. Everything that Jesus is supposed to be doing the second time he comes is what he was expected to do the first time. But it's been deferred because he got killed and he yeah. wasn't able to do it the first time. I love That's that. my opinion. Yeah. And I think, I think people can read between the lines on some of what you're saying. And, and I think you're making important points and I'll add just two thoughts on Jesus. One is that if if the Jesus of the New Testament were alive today and was born into Mormonism, he may have started a podcast and did what all of us are doing, like John DeLynn and Lindsay Hansen Park and you and me. He was a rebel to the system. 
he was poking at the leadership of his church. And so he's essentially doing what we're doing. And I think we would all get along pretty well. The second thing I would say, <clears throat> so I, I actually like Jesus a lot. I, I even tried, and I think I'll go back to it at some point and do more work with it. But I started a mythical Jesus podcast where I say, look, up front, I don't believe Jesus is historical in terms of being a risen Lord and Savior, but I think there's a lot we can lear, learn from the Christ figure of the New Testament. Um, I, I really do value Jesus as a model of human development and how we should operate in the world in healthy ways. Now, I'll say this. Once I deconstructed Mormonism, I had all the tools I needed to deconstruct Christianity too. And so at the end of that, I no longer could believe in Jesus' historicity. It was, it was just more of the same thing. Once I understood <clears throat> in an age of verifiable history that Mormonism could come up with as much bullshit as it did, then how much more bullshit would another system create in an age of unverifiable history when you couldn't fact check and double check things? And I would expect it to be exponentially greater. Um, so there's that. All right. Last question, and we'll end our show tonight. Um, and I think this is a good one. Somebody's asking, do you and I get much hate? Um, any thoughts from you? Do you get a lot of hate mail? Do you get a lot of negative comments? Do you get a lot of negative no, anything? Yeah. I don't. Either. All I get is love, love, love. Same. It's embarrassing sometimes, actually. But keep it coming. Yeah. And, and you know, you and I both, because I see messages come through that I'm forwarding to you. You and I both get a ton of positive feedback and and some fair criticisms, but it's minor. And I think both you and I both acknowledge like some of that's fair. In terms of hate stuff, I had one dad email me four or five years ago, and he was furious with me because his kids listened, his daughter and her husband listened to my podcast and they deconstructed and they left Mormonism. And he saw me as the place to put all of his vitriol, uh, all of his blame. And um, he didn't want to have anything to do with my response or my me wanting to have a conversation with him and to help him understand why they left. Uh, he just needed somebody to be angry at. And honestly, in all my time outside of Fair Mormon, that's the only really negative message I've ever gotten. Oh, I got one other. Um, when I joined the church in Sandusky, Ohio, as a 17-year-old, there, the guy who was the bishop then, I was the bishop when he was going through a terminal illness and eventually passed away. His wife wrote me a handwritten, like eight-page letter where she just says, I wish that you had never joined the church, and I wish we had never participated in helping you join the church. Um, you, we, you, we, we see you, and she's talking about her um, and her family, they see me as like just something evil to be criticized with, again, vitriol and hate speech. And it was one of the saddest things I'd ever gotten because I served this family as a bishop. This family was instrumental in my coming into the church, and yet all she has today for me is just hate. So that that was the other one. But outside of that, really, everything's been essentially positive. Anything else on your end uh, in that regard? Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like the play? Exactly. Um, yeah, it was a great it was a great show, right? Um, I think that'll do it. I, we covered a lot of ground there, and I think we'll do more of these in the future. People, there were comments that people really were enjoying the show, and I think it's a fun chance for people to ask questions about how and you and I put 
things together or take them apart. Um, be- kind of before we close out, any final thoughts from you on the stuff that we covered tonight um, or the AMA or anything else that's on your mind? You know, I think I got most of it off my mind at the beginning. There's been a lot of things going on uh, recently in the church. It, it That's one of the blessings, if I may use that word, of President Nelson being the president of the church is that he is, uh, you know, he's receiving revelations like hell isn't having any. He is going to chalk up the most revelations of any president of this church since Joseph Smith. And he may surpass Joseph Smith if President Nelson reaches 100. I, I will say this. He uh, definitely leads the church in having a revelation and then reversing it. Correct. Yeah, it's usually a better look if you wait at least a century for that to happen and let someone else reverse it and take the heat for it. Yeah, and and it reminds me, it's as we think about all the things that are going on, um, we are often criticizing leaders. I could play the Oaks quote, but but this one, I don't think it's enough time. Uh, one day, you and I ought to, I'll close with this, you and I ought to examine this quote and see where he's pulling this data from because he is pulling data And there's a reason the data lines up to justify his position, but his position is complete bullshit. So we'll end with this as you and I recognize that the church is under scrutiny more than ever, and its issues are laid out for all of us to examine and recognize that Mormonism doesn't add up. And hence, people are leaving the church as they now have the data and the uh, autonomy to take back their own lives. Some have asserted that more members are leaving the church today and that there is more doubt and unbelief than in the past. This is simply not true. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has never been stronger.